Let's go ahead and take our Bibles, and we're going to be in the Old Testament in the book of Judges again, Judges chapter number 4. Judges chapter number 4. And I guess for the last month, we've been in the book of Judges, and going through some different things, looking at how God used kind of unlikely heroes to do his will, to help, and to deliver. And uh, we looked the first week, kind of getting the theme of Judges, as you look in Judges chapter 2, uh, we looked at the whole mentality. I think it's mentioned four different times. In fact, it's the last verse of the book of Judges. It says, and in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man and woman, it's you know, not gender specific there, did what was right in their own eyes. So they just did whatever they wanted. And they had nobody to rule over them and nobody to tell them what's right and wrong. They did what they wanted. And so that was kind of the, the predominant theme throughout the book of Judges. And Judges is really... If the more you read Judges, it is a very, it's a violent book. Let's just be honest. It's a very, it's not a tiptoe through the tulips where you just feel like everyone's just dancing and hugging each other and speaking poetic to each other. Uh, If you were here last week, we looked at Ehud, and uh, Ehud actually, it says, was the left-handed assassin who actually stabbed and killed Eglon, the guy that was oppressing them. And so the whole book of Judges is about ultimately this, it's about Israel's moral failure. How Israel is God's chosen people, right? They go into the promised land. So you got Moses, you got Joshua. They cross over the Jordan River. They're in the promised land. They're in the land of Canaan. Okay, that's important to remember for later. They're in the land of Canaan. They're in the promised land. And they're told when they're there to drive out all the other inhabitants. The people that were there in Canaan, don't let them stay. Drive them out. And, you, and when you read the Bible sometimes, you ever sometimes say, well, why did God do this? This doesn't make a lot of sense. Why did God do this? Why was God, it seemed like God was mean here. Well, the reason why is the people that lived in the land of Canaan not only worshiped false gods, but part of their false god that they would worship, they were big into child sacrificing. They did a lot of that, which to us it seems a senseless, stupid kind of thing. But they were big into that. Like that's how they thought they got favor, uh, excuse me, favor with their gods and those different things. And God knew that if they left them there, they couldn't cohabit together because they would go their direction. And, and so we really see how they fail. Joshua dies, and after Joshua dies, it starts to sin against Israel. In fact, it talks about in Joshua chapter 2, there rose a generation that knew not the Lord, which means they rejected God. And the whole book is, has this mentality, and I know I've had this up for a few weeks, but it's kind of Israel's cycle of sin and morality and spirituality, if you will, So Israel starts off really great. They obey God. They got peace with God. This is where all of us want to live in life, right? We want want peace with God. I don't know if we always want to obey God, but we at least want the peace with God. But then because of the other people in the land, they fall into sin. They start worshiping idols and things like that. And so they fall into sin and idolatry. And because of that, God allows them to be oppressed and slaves to the very people they didn't drive out. So it's kind of humorous in a sense. Because they didn't drive some of the people out, they started worshiping their God, and God says, okay, I'm going to let them rule over you. So the whole point of getting out of Egypt was freedom, right? And here they are, because they won't obey God, they lose their freedom, and we see they go into slavery, they get oppressed, different things, and then eventually they cry out to God, and then God raises a judge or a deliverer, and then they go back. And we've been talking about it for the first few weeks, okay? And what we've been dealing with is this, They're, the judges are not like judges like we think a courtroom. These judges were prophets, which means God would speak to them, and they would give the people what God was going to do. Some of them had the office of priest. 
Some of them were warriors. I mean, they were just warriors and different people. I think of Samson. Samson was definitely a warrior. Othniel, the first one we studied, was, was a warrior. Ehud was a warrior. But what's interesting about the book of Judges, the more you get into it, is that all of these judges, there's six or seven main ones that we'll look at. From the first one until the last one, they, get, they start to digress. I mean, in their spirituality and their walk with God. Othniel was very high up. He did very good. In fact, I think he's the nephew of Caleb, if you remember Caleb in Scripture. And so you kind of got three ones that are pretty good. You got Othniel. We looked at Ehud. And tonight we're going to look at Deborah, uh, how the, the woman judge that God used in Scripture. And then after that, they kind of get okay. And eventually the worst judge ever is Samson. When we think Samson, we think of the baddest judge. Well, he's bad and mean as his strength, but he's also the most wicked judge of anything. In fact, a lot of people wonder if Samson really had a relationship with the Lord or not. He's one of what we call those mystery men. We wonder about his soul. But anyhow, so we see this and this whole idea. And like I said, so they obey God. They have peace with God in their life. But then they start going their own direction, doing what's right. And then they start getting oppressed and get slavery. And then they cry out to God for God to help them. And God delivers them that. Which to me, this is my life. I'll just be honest with you. This is me. I have peace with God. And then eventually I get used to God's peace in my life. And I get my priorities out of whack. And when my priorities get out of whack, eventually, instead of me being in control, they're in control of me. And those things, I think, are not that bad. They're kind of petty. They're little, hey, it's okay. It's not that big a deal. Next thing you know, I'm enslaved by them. And then next thing you know, I'm begging God to deliver me from that addiction, from that slavery, from that thing in my life that I can't control. And then God delivers me and restores me. So we see these things. And so, again, I know that's just kind of a looking at that to begin with. But you need to understand that. As we come to read this part of Judges, so Judges chapter 4, we're not going to read the whole, whole chapter, but Judges 4, I like to read a few verses through here, beginning in verse number 1, okay? Judges 4, verse 1, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud, he was a judge, was dead. And the Lord set, sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazar, the captain of whose host was Sisera, uh, which dwelt in... Another fun word there, Hoasheth of the, of the Gentiles. Look at verse 3. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. Verse 4. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipitoth, uh, she judged Israel at that time. So we see kind of here the idea that they're oppressed, and this is what's going on. But when we see this, okay, so they're oppressed by this guy, uh, this guy Jabin, okay? And we were oppressed by Jabin, and they had peace. To give you an understanding, and I know some of y'all don't love history like I love history, but to give you an understanding, Othniel came in, the very first judge, and he gave them peace for like 20 years after they'd been oppressed for eight. And then you have Ehud. Ehud, after they've been oppressed for eight years, he comes and he gives them peace. And I don't know if you remember that or not, but it says about Ehud in the end of chapter number 3, verse 30, that they had rest for 80 years. So for 80 years, they had peace. For 80 years, they had freedom from those people that would enslave them. Let me just ask you, how would you like to have peace in your life from those things that pull at you that you know that are bad from God? And how would you like to have peace for 80 years? For 80 years, that sounds pretty cool. This is the longest stint in the 300 years of this deal, that Israel has peace. And it's under Ehud. But if you notice something in Scripture, what happens? Ehud dies, 
And what does it say happens in verse 1? And Israel did evil again. And so again, you start to circle in the sin of Israel. And so we're going to read something here just a little bit. But let's stop and pray real quick, and then we'll get into our passage. Lord, I just pray you be with us tonight, Lord, as we look in your word. Lord, I pray that you give wisdom. Lord, I pray you might use me in spite of me. And Lord, I ask you to forgive me where I fail you. And Lord, I especially want to uplift tonight the Merch family. Lord, I pray that you'd comfort them, help them. And Lord, I pray for the peace of God that passes all understanding, that it will keep their hearts and their minds. Lord, that you be with them tonight. Make your presence real. Draw them closer to you. And Lord, I just thank you for everyone here tonight. I pray you might just bless them, bless their homes, their families, Lord, their jobs. Lord, as we look in Scripture here, Lord, may we please to see exactly what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we read this part here, and it says that they were oppressed for 20 years, all right? So what's going to happen here? We're going to go back in just a moment. But what happens is there's going to be a huge battle, okay? And Deborah, or Deborah, however you want to say it, I call it Deborah just because it's easier for me. She is the judge that God uses under a guy named Barak. But I want you to skip down to verse number 18 real quick, okay? Verse 18 says this. So there's a big battle. Everything's happening with the Canaanites and Deborah and Barak, all of them, Israel. And they start to get the victory, okay? And the key man that Jabin uses, the Canaanite evil king, is a guy named Sisera. Sisera sees everyone's dead, and he flees. Now, you want to talk about the Old Testament not being boring. You're going to read some verses here that just lets you know how unboring really the Old Testament is. So look in verse number 17. Howbeit Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So Sisera is running for his life. His whole army has been defeated. He's running from the Israelites, running for his life. And verse 18 says, And Jael went out to meet Sisera, and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, turn in to me, fear not. And when he turned in and to her, to the, to the tent, she covered him with a mantle. And he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him. Again he said unto her, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be when any man doth come in and inquire of thee and say, Is there any man here, that thou shalt say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent and took a hammer in her hand and went softly unto him and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it to the ground. So he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. Well, that's a pretty obvious part of Scripture right there. He died, okay? It's kind of like you're glad to have those words, so he died, but we're all going to pretty much assume that happened, okay? So he died, all right? So verse 22, And behold, as Barak pursues Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said unto him, Come, and I will show you that man whom thou seekest. And when he came in to her tent, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. All right, so you read this story, and you're like, that sounds really cool. How do I apply this to my life at all? How do I? <laughs> okay. All right. So, you know, how in the world do... Okay, so we got this lady, Jail, and she obviously... Man, y'all pick at me about wanting to have titles, man. I wanted to have some serious fun with some titles to this message, like to the point, nailed it, whatever you want to say. I mean, I was all over the map. Like, I, I always had to catch myself, say, quit thinking of titles and just study the Bible. You know, there's a lot that I really wanted to do there. Uh, 
nailed it, whatever you want to say, you know. Look what that's, okay, all right. All right, let's get back to the Bible. Okay, good, good. Reasoning with us, I'm sorry. All right, so, so I'm thinking, though, this is obviously something that God wanted not just the children of Israel to remember, but obviously through God's foreknowledge, he, he, he knew we'd be reading this thousands of years later. Why? What's the importance? What can we take from this? Well, I encourage you, when you read passages of Scripture that are difficult, or you read stories in the Bible and you're like, God has a purpose for that. You know, when we studied Ehud the last two weeks that we studied Ehud, the left-handed guy that killed Eglon, and I love how it says Eglon, it says he was a very, very fat man. So, I mean, I mean, and he killed him. A lot of very detailed description of how he killed him and all those different things. And we looked at the idea of how God can give us victory over long-term sin in our lives, how we get victory over it. But what I want us to see in this passage in Judges chapter 4, which, by the way, on a side note, Judges chapter 5, God does give the victory, right? But in Judges chapter 5, it's Deborah's song of praise. And we're not going to go into that tonight, but I encourage you sometime, read Judges chapter 5. It's Deborah's song that she writes as a song of praise of how God used her, how God used Barak, and how God used Jael to give them the victory, okay? So when we look at this back in chapter, number, chapter 4 and, and looking at this and understanding it, as I said, Ehud was a great judge. Ehud, during his life, after he killed Eglon, they had 80 years of peace. The longest amount of peace they had. Which, by the way, I take from that this. I take from that this. That long-term blessings of God can lead us to taking God for granted. You know, God blesses a lot of us, if not all of us, with some of the same blessings day after day after day after day. And what does it say? They had peace for 80 years. But when Ehud died, what does it say in the very first verse, chapter 4? And the children of Israel, again. You know what it means? They kind of started forgetting how God blessed them. And I don't want to make something that it's not. But can I encourage you with something? I think they got used to having peace and blessing in their life that they took it for granted. You know, you think about what did God bless you with today? And a lot of times if you just stop and think about it, like, well... You know, I got up today. It wasn't a bad of a day. But if you really stop and think about everything that God blessed you in your life today, just to be here tonight, how God blessed you from the time you woke up, hey, you woke up, uh, you were able to get out of bed, you had to do these different things, and that you had a place to go to work, you had all these different things. You know, we really a lot of times forget to thank God for the little blessings. And, and it's not original with me, but I heard someone saying, I don't remember it is, that what if you woke up tomorrow with only the things you thank God for today? What if tomorrow when you woke up, the only thing you had in life is what you thank God for today? I try to think about that a lot. I try to think about it every day. Because you know, when I do, I start saying, God, there's a lot of things that I take for granted. A lot of things I take for granted. And I find something interesting in my life, and you might find it in your life. The more I think about God's blessings, and the more I praise God for his blessings, the less likely I am to do verse 1 to start sinning again against God. But whenever I start thinking about what I don't have, and I start taking for granted what I got, and I start kind of thinking, hey, I'm the reason all this is happening. Whew, watch out. That's when evil presents itself. And not having that arrogant... See, the thing is, Ehud died. 
So the memory of God's blessing and God's deliverance and God's victory was no longer a visible thing. And when that visible thing went away, sin returned. And so I see that. And as like I said, I just want to encourage you, outside of just knowing the trivia question uh, tonight, that hopefully what we learn is that the goodness of God should cause us to love God more. The goodness of God in our life should cause us to serve him more. I'm not going to belittle anything that you're going through here in your life, but there is something awesome to no matter what you're going through in your life, God is present. If you know the Lord is your Savior, he is present to help you, and he is enough to help you through whatever it is you'll face. Is that God is enough, and he's a personal God when we see that. But we see here in this passage, in verse number 2, it says, because they sinned, look what it says in verse 2, and the Lord sold them in the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. You know what that means? God allowed that. You ever someone say, well, why did God allow these heathen, child-sacrificing king to have them? Because they knew what was right, and they rejected it. And I tell you, if you ever read in Scripture, you know, everyone says, well, Jesus was so soft and so gentle and so loving, and everything was so kind. Do you ever see how he was with the Pharisees? Yeah, I mean, he was pretty harsh when that walked, because they knew the truth, they had the truth, and they departed from it. Well, Jesus turned tables over. Well, let's just be honest. He, he turned the tables over in the temple. In the temple. Because the people that knew what was right weren't doing what was right. And so we see that. And so we see how God will do whatever it takes to get his children back in line. And that's the love of God. We don't always look at that. But it's the love of God that says, hey, I'm going to get me back in line. It's the love of God that whenever I sin and go away from God... That God says, I love Phil enough to get him back in line, whatever it takes to get him back in line. You ever had to discipline a child? No, never. I got it. Just me. Okay, cool. Um, I have not one time ever had to get on to or discipline one of my children. They look at me and say, Father, I just want to praise you for loving me enough to get me. You knew I was going on the, uh, the Broadway and you put me back on the straight and narrow. Thank you, Father. I, I, I praise your name. Thank you. Okay, if they did, they'd been smart. Like, and I probably would have decked them, you know, if they would have said that, you know. But you know what's funny is that in the moment, you don't see gratitude. In the moment, I don't think of that. I think, God, why are you let me, why are you let me go through this? And so God uses this. But there's something about this, and I know I've got to tell, talk about this quick, because I want to get out of the history part and get to the real application here. This is a ruler like they've never seen. Canaan is not just a king like Agag was a king. Canaan was a superpower. Canaan was this. There were several city-states, and those different city-states had kings, but Jabin was the king of the kings. So all the kings would pay homage to him. All the kings would send their armies to him. So he was like the big boy. In fact, many people believe Jabin looked at himself as a god, kind of like Caesar did, because he was what he called king of kings, is what he was. And we see his army. I don't know if you noticed that in verse number, uh, I believe it's verse number three. He had 900 chariots. Not just 900 chariots, but of iron. Think about the day and age they're living in. That's a pretty formidable foe. I mean, that by itself, no one else had anything close to that. He had a huge army, huge following. And one of the main things he had in this is they, God allowed them to be controlled by the superpower. But what's interesting is Jabin's really not mentioned a whole lot left. This guy, Sisera, is. 
And so he's mentioned in how he rules. And we see here, I like verse 3, you get where we finally get to this part here, where Israel, after it says 20 years, cries out to God. After being in bondage 20 years, which, by the way, I know I've mentioned it, if you've heard me before, why doesn't Israel cry out to God in year one? Because they weren't fed up with their oppressor yet. They were okay with Jabin being their oppressor. It's kind of like me in my life. Why does it take me weeks, months, days, and years to ask God to help me get freedom over the sin that controls me in my life? You know why? Because I'm not fed up with it yet. I still got some enjoyment in the sin. Even though the sin may have control over me, I still have some enjoyment, so I don't, I'm not fed up with it yet. I don't like it, but man, I like it just enough to keep it. I like it just enough that I don't want to throw it out. And that's what happened. I mean, for 20 years, they stayed under oppression. Because every time you read in the book of Judges, like in verse 3, where the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, it says immediately God raised up a deliverer. Immediately. So it's not that God wasn't able to do it. It's not God says, okay, I'll give you about 15 years, and I'll give you a deliverer. He says the moment they cry out, God raises a deliverer. God raises a way to escape. And that's just as true in our life. And don't forget that regardless of how many judges we look at, is that we can get deliverance from things in our life that displease God, that bind us in our lives, that control us in our lives. But God will not deliver us until this right here. Never one time do you see it go from here to here. This part is needed. You know what this part is? It's what we study Sunday morning. Psalm 51. It's repentance. Not just a, real, not just a repentance, but complete, genuine thorough, to be thoroughly repentant of the sin. They generally cry out to God. And we see here in this is that God raises up a judge named Deborah. And Deborah is the only woman judge that I read about in Scripture that God uses. And in fact, it says about her, she's a prophetess, which means this, that she, God would speak to her and she would be able to tell the children of Israel, hey, God spoke to me, this is what's going to happen. You say, Phil, I don't like that. I don't believe there were prophetesses in the Bible. Well, Miriam was in Exodus 15, Huldah was in 2 Kings 22, Noadiah was in Nehemiah 6, Anna we read about during Christmas time. Anna is actually one of the ones in, I believe it's Luke chapter 2, that she saw the Lord, saw Jesus as a baby, says, now I can die, just like Simeon, now I can die. In fact, Philip, you know, that we read about, pretty cool name, Philip, you know, greatly used of God, you know, anyhow, the other guy, all four of his daughters were prophetesses. You read about that in Acts chapter 21. Now, I want to tell you something. Just throw it out here. Don't throw rocks at me. That were prophetess mean God spoke to them, and they delivered the message of the Lord. The, none of these judges, okay, were pastors. None of them were preachers. But they all said, this is what God said, and this is what we do. And you know what I love about Deborah? She doesn't let her situation of being a woman, and understand my heart in this, keep her from serving God. You're talking about the children of Israel. It was all patriarchal. It's all the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. You, you don't ever hear it says the God of Sarah, the God of Rebekah, the God of Rachel. Never hear it. So it's always man, 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 man. You know what I love about Deborah? Deborah had every reason in the world to say, ain't no God doing what they're supposed to be doing here, so I ain't going to sit back and do it. I love how Deborah says, you know what? There's a need. God spoke to me. I'm going to do it. I thank God for that. You know, it's kind of like in our church and in many churches. I thank God for all the godly women that are in this room. All the godly women we're going to have. Thank you. 
I'll tell you right now, I'm here today partially because I love my dad, but I had a godly mama that prayed for me every single day with me, every single day. I don't know what kind of home you grew up in. I'm not, you know, if you did or didn't have it. But, you know, I grew up with a godly mother, and I thank God for that. And I tell you, my godly mama got me through a lot of stuff. It really helped me out. And I thank God for every godly woman that steps in and does what she needs to do and is a leader when they need to be leaders in that. Because, you know, when you read about Deborah, you know what it tells me? And, guys, this is the offense. Offense needs to be for the guys. There weren't any godly guys in Israel. Guys weren't doing their job. And if you look at it, I know I shared it with you not too long ago. They say the average church that you go to is made up close to 65 to 70% is made up of women. And it's not because they're widows. And I know there are widows, don't get me wrong. But because a lot of times there's, there's a man not there that could be there in that. So I'll tell you right now, ladies, kudos to you for your godliness. Because I know a lot of you, it's a difficult thing to do. It's difficult to do that. You would love to have that support. You would love to have that. And I tell you, thank God for you. I'm really looking forward to Mother's Day and what we're going to look at. So, you, like I said, you've got friends, family you want here? Bring them here. We're going to love them in Christ on that day, okay? Um, but when we look at this and we see how God uses Deborah, and I love, Deborah's name, by the way, means bee, like a bumblebee. Her name means bee, and she's known as the Lady of Grace. Now, when I think of a bee... And the, the thought process is this, is that the bee is one that will take uh, the pollen, that will take the nectar, and will nurture other things. But when it's on the attack, man, it leaves a sting. I was like, man, this sounds like my mama right here. You know, you know that's what I thought about. You know, you know, when it comes time to fight, it's time to fight, and you're going to be remembered, okay? Kind of like this, you know, what's the little joke about mama bear? You know, you all right till you know, I found out a long time ago. You know, you, you mess with people. Don't mess with people's kids. You mess with people's kids. It's like on like Donkey Kong. Like, you know, the dad may be like, oh, that's right. He's dumb. He deserves it. You know, mama's like ready to draw swords. Let's go. You know, let's go. It don't matter. He can be wrong 50 times. I'm ready to go to battle. That's my baby, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But I love her. And I love how I study her. And what I see here is this, is that Deborah was a blessing not just to Barak that we're going to see here in a moment, but because of the godliness of Deborah, she was a blessing that led to the deliverance of her whole people. We're talking millions of people. She was the blessing. She was the leader. And if you look in verse number 6 and 7, so she meets this guy Barak or Barak, however you want to say it. I know I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. So she sees him. He's like the perfect guy to be a general. Because here's the thing that I find hilarious, okay? Um, the children of Israel, even in their oppressed state, even though they acknowledged that she was a prophetess, Deborah, even though they acknowledged that, they wouldn't let her lead the army. They wouldn't let her lead the army. And so she goes up and says, all right, I'm going to talk to Barak here. And she tells Barak, here, I want you to go out and I want you to face the Sarah. And when you face the Sarah, uh, here's what you're going to do. And this is what you're going to do. And God's going to give you a great victory. And Barak looks at her. And I think it's pretty funny when you read um, verse number 8. Barak said unto her, if thou will go with me, then I will go. <laughs> but if thou will not go with me, then I will not go. Barak understood something. God's hand and blessing and spirit is on that woman right there. And I ain't going to go unless you go with me. 
Now, there's two things I read from that. One, let's just be honest. Bark was smart. <laughs> but also, I see this. Bark was weak. And he says, just having somebody in my life that has the presence of God in my life, I need that to help me do what I need to do. And can I encourage you something, ladies, just on a side note? If your husband, if your brother, if your son, if anybody in your life is weak spiritually, that's the greatest moment they need you to be strong spiritually. Bart basically says, I understand. You said God's going to give me the victory. Great. But I ain't going unless you go with me. You know, sometimes I think we forget sometimes, especially ladies, your spirituality sometimes can definitely carry the family. They can carry you know, that in, the, in your husband and your spouse and your children, people that you work with, when they're spiritually weak, you be that strength. You be that presence of the Lord to help them. I mean, God bless me. I mean, I, with, a, with a great wife. Y'all know Rachel? I love her to death. I do. Can I tell you, she has got me out of trouble more times than I feel like telling you publicly is really what I want to say. There's a lot of times I'm like, you know what? And she goes, uh-huh, what about this? I'm glad she's not in here tonight, you know. And she doesn't listen to stuff online, so I'm cool. Don't, don't tell her to listen to it, Justin. Okay, so anyhow. But can I just be honest with you? There's been a lot of really weak times in my life spiritually. I'm just being honest. I mean, like, I'm ready to quit. I ain't talking about get out of the ministry. I mean, get out of church, give up on God, get, just, just give up. And I tell you, she has been sometimes that presence... Y'all think she's real quiet and meek. You, you, you need to get to know Rachel, okay, all right? She is. But just her encouragement, you know, carried me a lot. I'll be honest with you, 10 years ago, I was in a bad place spiritually. Bad place. And it's only by the grace of God that I am where I am today. I got it, it's God. But God used a Deborah, if you will, to say, hey, I love you. Let's keep going. Hey, by the way, you may not see where God could use that husband, that son, that father, whatever it is, that child you want to help. You have no idea what God could be doing with them in five years, ten years. But it's going to require you being that presence in their life today. Go ahead and start doing it today. Don't do that. Don't just back out of that. So that was for free. All right, good. We keep going, okay? So we're not going to read all of it. Verses 10 through 16, you know, uh, Barak and um, Deborah go. God gives Israel the victory. And as we just read, verse 17, what happens? Uh, Sisera sees that, or Sisera, however you like to say it, he's running for his life. Because back in verse number 16, I don't know if you saw that, but verse number 16, when the battle's over, there's no other Canaanites left. They're all dead. Like, they defeated all 900 chariots of iron. Once again, be really cool if God could let us see some things when we get to heaven. I like to know how this number of people that was, they had, I think they had by far, I think it's close to half the amount of soldiers that the Canaanites had and didn't have the chariots of iron. But God let them kill every one of them. So Sarah looks up and he's the only dude standing. So Sisera, Sisera, whatever, he takes off. And I see in verse 17 that he goes, if you see here, how be it, how be it he, he fled on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber. All right, now, this is what I want you to see, and this is a cool thing when you really start studying this. So, Sisera flees for his life, and he ends up at this tent of this guy's wife named Heber. Heber's not there. 
Okay? So here's what's cool about Heber that I found out, that I studied. Heber was on the advisory kind of committee or board of Jabin. You know who Jabin is? The king of the Canaanites. So Caesarea says, hey, I can go in this guy's wife's tent because he is a friend of Jabin. Here's the other thing about Heber I found interesting studying him. You know who Heber is a direct descendant of? Moses. That's interesting. So obviously Heber had some issues in his life, didn't he? Okay, so I'm a descendant of the leader deliverer of the Jews, but he's also one of the closest friends advisors to the guy that's oppressing his people. So when you read this, obviously Cicera thinks this is a friend of my master. They'll let me in. And I like this. I don't know if you see this in verse 18. She comes out to meet him and says, turn on in. Turn into me, fear not. I don't know if we really want to talk about really what that was, but she got him in the tent, okay? And when he had turned in the tent and she covered him with mouth, she covered him up. He's obviously worn out. He's tired. He's exhausted. And I like how she goes above and beyond. Verse 19, what she say? He's like, give me a little bit of something to drink, water drink. She said, I got better than water, buddy. I got milk. I don't know what was in the milk, but the dude went to sleep pretty quickly, okay? She's like, here, let me cozy you up. You go right there. You go to sleep. That's good. And I don't know for sure. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not 100% sure if J.L. knew who Cicera was. I'm not sure. But I do know when Cicera asked her to lie in verse number 19 and 20, when he told her to lie to any of the Israelites and anybody that come, something clicked in that woman's head. Like, oh, bad boy here don't need to be in my tent. Because, I mean, she's like, come on in, you're here. And he's like, hey, if anybody comes, and uh, in verse number 20, again, he said unto her, stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be when any man doth come and inquire of thee and say, is there a man here? Thou shalt say no. He's like, so I need you to lie. So I personally, I'm, I think she probably didn't really know for sure who he was. I'm not 100% sure. But I know this, that she says, what's in my tent doesn't need to stay in my tent. It doesn't need to be comfortable in my tent. And so I like verse number uh, 21. Uh, then Jael's Heber's wife took a nail of the tent. And let me tell you this real quick. In that culture, the women were the ones that put the tents together. So it's not like Jael didn't know where's the hammer at, where's the, the tent spikes at. That's what they did. And in this Israel's culture at that time when they pitched tents because they dwelt in tents, the ladies were the ones that put the tent up. Did all that stuff like that. Uh, that wouldn't happen in my life. Rachel's idea is a Hampton Inn. It ain't going to be putting no tent if we ever go camping. So that's not going to happen. Some of y'all just said amen more and you'll say amen any other time. All right? But what I'm saying is she knew where it was at. And so she gets this tent spike. And I don't know exactly how or why, but she says, you know what? This dude doesn't need to stay. He doesn't need to stay alive. And if you see this, you know, in this passage here, he says, and she went to him softly, like he's asleep. He's out. And she doesn't want to make noise. She doesn't look at him and say, get out of my tent. She says, you know what? This dude, it needs to end now. So she takes this spike, and she lays it right on this temple. And you know how it goes. And I almost brought in a hammer and a big tent thing just for the visual aid and say, who volunteers? But anyhow, with that, but um, a couple's therapy session. But anyhow, um, this is pretty interesting, though. 
You want to talk about courage? I mean, you think about her and her life. I don't know much about jail, but she thought to herself, you know what? He doesn't need to make it. He needs to die. But she had courage enough to say, I know where this stuff is. I'll go get it. I get the hammer, get the stake. I'm going to go to him, and I'm going to kill him. And you know what I find interesting? She had courage to do something that's pretty incredible, to be honest with you. She had courage to do that, and so you see how she does it. She goes in quietly, and then after she does it, I mean, verse 22, and behold, as Barak pursues to Sarah, Jael came out to meet him, said, come, and I'll show you the man whom thou seekest. And she took him in. She's like, hey, Barak, we finished it. It's done. You started it, I finished it. I got it done. It's over. Now, you say, Phil, that's really great. What's the big deal? How do I apply this? Jael had a choice. I really believe at some point when Cicera came in, she had a choice. I can either be the enemy of God and allow him to stay here and be comfortable here and hide him here, or I can be the enemy of God's enemies, and I can, through courage, kill this thing, kill this guy. And you say, what's the big deal? What I mean is that, can I tell you this? God never does anything great through neutral people. God never does anything great through people that are passive in their spiritual walk. Everywhere you read about God doing something great is in moments of courage, moments of trust, moments of great faith. You don't see her saying, well, I'm not going to really mess with him, but I don't really want to be associated. I'm just going to be neutral. God never does anything through somebody that's neutral. It's kind of like this. You say, um, well, I know that this person that I'm with right now and I'm sitting here and eating with my coworker, and they're just cussing and they're taking God's name in vain and they're just going off and saying all kinds of nasty, terrible things. But I don't really want to offend them and say, hey, if you would, could you tone that down? I'm a Christian. But then again, I don't want to take my Bible and slap them upside the head and say, thus saith the Lord. So I'm just going to sit here quietly and not participate. Here's the problem with that kind of thinking. Everybody that sees you in that group thinks you're doing the same thing they're doing. That's the problem. That's the problem. It's kind of like if you're with a group of people and every one of them are getting just drunk out of their mind, but you're, no, I'm just going to sit here. What do you think anybody else that walks by and sees? They're going to think you're doing the same thing. They're going to think I'm doing the same. No, I'm neutral. I just don't want to offend anybody. I'll just be lukewarm. Revelation 3, 14 through 16 talks about how God feels about us being lukewarm. He said, I wish you were either hot or you were cold, but because you're lukewarm, he says, I want to spew you. He says, you actually make me want to vomit. And God's speaking to a church when he says that. He says, because you won't be for me or against me, being neutral, I just don't want you. That's pretty strong language, too, if you actually read the portions of Scripture that he talks about. And I heard someone say this one time, you can't hold hands with Jesus in the world and expect God to do something great in you or through you. If I asked you, how many of you really would like to see God do something great in your family's life, in your life physically, maybe financially, maybe in a loved one's life or something? If you'd like to see God do something great, he's not going to do it if we're one way on Sunday and a total different way during the week. Ain't going to do it. Because it says, man, look at on the outward appearance, but where does God look? He sees my heart. He sees me. You know what? If you see me, if the only way I'm like this is just on Wednesday nights and Sundays, but I am totally different outside of here, 
God ain't going to do nothing in me or through me. Not what he could do. In fact, it actually says that I make God sick if that's the way I am. That if he sees me that way. And can I tell you, the basic moral of this story is this. The battle is won, but it's not finished. But she wanted to make sure something. Cicero is not going to leave her tent. She was not going to give him an opportunity to escape, to raise up another army, to do anything to come back and defeat. She says, you know what? The enemy's in my tent, and the enemy's got to die. Can I tell you something? The tent there is a picture of your life. And anything in your tent that displeases God, you've got to get rid of it. You can say some corny cliche. You got whatever, whatever you want to say. I got it. Okay, in a lot of ways we have fun there. But can I tell you something? The enemy of God in my tent might be my, be my unwillingness to forgive somebody. The enemy of God that I'm letting be comfortable in my tent might be the music I listen to. It might be the things that I watch. It might be some of the addictions I have in my life. It might be my prideful attitude. But can I tell you something? If I'm allowing that to get comfortable and have resonance in my life, you know what? God's not going to be pleased and God's never going to do something great through my life and really inspire people and help people and do things like, I got to get the enemy out of my tent. I got to kill it. I got to kill it. I can't let it be comfortable there. And, you know, just ask yourself this, I guess, in the way I look at it. You're here, you're saved, but do you get the enemy in your tent? Do you have the enemy in your tent? Do you have the wrong kind of attitude? Do you have the wrong kind of things in your life? And I have this, anything against God doesn't belong in my tent. Anything in my life, I have to ask myself this, is there anything in my life that doesn't please God? Here's the problem. Can I just be honest with you for a moment as, as we close here? I think, well, I go to church, I read my Bible, I preach, I do all these things, I try to attract, and I got these couple things here that you know, they, they ain't real bad. So I think the 90% good outweighs the 10% that's kind of, but that's still the wrong thing in my tent. When you read James chapter 4, verse 4, it says, whosoever is a friend of the world has enmity or is the enemy of God. So if I have things that I'm friendly to that are not pleasing to God, I've actually put myself on the opposite side of God. That's the thing to remember. Anything in my life that I know displeases God, if I'm friendly to it, if I cater to it, I'm actually putting myself against God. That is not a boat I want to be in. But it's something that I allow to stay in my tent. That's something when I say, oh, it's not a big deal. It's not that big a thing at all. But you know what? If the enemy's in your tent, you can't play with it. I like how jail doesn't go, well, you know, I'll just, you know, I'll just, I'll, I'll just play with it a little bit. I'll, make it come, I'll, I'll put it off. No, no, she goes and gets a hammer, which, by the way, you know what a hammer is symbolized in the Bible? This is the hammer. Read Jeremiah, this is the hammer. And so she takes the hammer and she gets rid of the enemy of God. She doesn't let it stay there. So the message tonight is this. Whatever is in your life that doesn't belong there, you need to use the Word of God and what's your knowledge of the Word of God, and you need to get rid of it. Don't let it stay comfortable. Don't let it stay comfortable. Think about it like this. What if she just waited and waited and waited and left in there and then Bark shows up? Bark's going to think, oh, jail's my enemy too. She was letting Bark know, <laughs> I'm on your side. I'm on God's side. Problem is, I wonder sometimes when God looks at me if he goes, hmm, which side are you on? 
I don't think God wonders about anything personally. He knows. But I wonder, he says, you know, what is it? And so I just want to encourage you tonight, you know, let's take a passage that's very interesting. But a couple things. One, let's be the encouragement to people we need to be. Let's just be honest. God's never going to do anything really through our lives until we get everything out of our tent that doesn't belong there. And guess what? It ain't going to go on its own. And here's something else I need to know. Anything in my life that I've been oppressed by, if I kick it out of my tent tonight, guess what it's going to try to do tomorrow? It's going to show back up tomorrow. That's why it's called the Christian walk. I've got to meet it at the door and kill it again. And guess what I'm probably going to do the next day? Kill it again. Why? Because for so long, it's been comfortable going in and out of my life. That's why Paul says what? I die daily. You've got to get to the point in your life. I've got to get to the point in my life where I've got to get rid of it. I've got to kill it. And I've got to be willing to say, God, I need your help in this process of getting victory over this in my life. Getting it out of your tent. Maybe we'll just use that as a title. Let's pray together and we'll leave.